0: Amen. Well, good morning, church family. All right, that was very sad. You you are officially going to be rebuked now. Let's try that again. Good morning, church family. Good morning. Act like you're here and you love Jesus and you're excited to be here in this beautiful... It's a beautiful day. We're here together. Um, things could be much worse, and so let's make sure we are thankful this morning. Um, I'm glad to be here with you as we open God's Word. Please take your Bibles. Open to Esther... Chapter 9, we're going to be looking at chapters 9 and 10 today as we conclude our sermon series in the, in the, in the book of Esther that's been entitled, God's Sovereignty in Silence and Suffering. And so as we conclude this morning, in, in chapters 9 and 10, we've reached the climax of the entire book of Esther. Esther and Mordecai have thwarted the evil plan of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, But the fateful day of his edict has finally come, the day when the people of Persia had permission to destroy the Jews, but there's also been a second edict now where they can defend themselves. So because of God's providence and his provision through Esther and Mordecai, in this chapter the Jews will gather and defend themselves from those who seek to do them harm. God's people will be delivered. And God's purposes will prevail. Now that same theme plays itself out over and over again throughout Scripture. So before I jump in, let me just again remind you of what all of your Bible is about. The the story of the Bible is the story that God provides for His people. Amen? It's the story that God protects His people and that God fulfills His promises to his people but more than that more than all of that the story of the bible is the story that god comes for his people and he rescues his people in the person of jesus so every old every old testament story of god's providence and esther is one of them every every old testament story of god's provision for his people and esther is one of those stories it's a hint it's a foreshadowing of God's ultimate purpose and plan in Christ to save His people and bring them back into an eternal relationship with Him. So as we wrap up the book of Esther, keep that in mind because um, today's sermon title is Providence and Provision. So I want to break it uh, chapters nine and ten into five sections and we'll move as quickly through them as we can. And as we as I give you the sections, we'll read the text and, and, uh, and kind of explain it to you. So the first thing I want you to see in Esther chapters 9 and 10 is vindication. All of these will be one word. It'll be easy to take notes. So verses 1 through 16 show the vindication of God's people. Let's read that together as the story unfolds. Uh, the Bible says there, it says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day... When the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews... For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also killed. Parshandatha and Dolphin, and Aspitha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashtha, and Arasai and Eridai, and Vasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. <clears throat> and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to the king's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows." So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Um, The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were also in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So what we see in verses 1 through 16 is a huge, um, is, is, God, is that God's people are vindicated through a huge reversal of fates. You see there in verse 1, it says, On the day that the enemies of the Jews sought to gain mastery over them, that the tables were actually overturned against them, that the reverse occurred. That phrase literally means the tables were turned upside down and so on this day that was planned for their destruction and their doom instead god's people are delivered instead of being victims of an injustice they are victors over those who would do them harm and they are vindicated by god if you remember on this day early in the book this is the precise day in the month of adar that haman had cast lots according to the omens and the stars that this would be the best day possible for him to carry out his plan against the Jews, but that was not so in God's providence. According to God's plan, everything changed for the good of his people. Proverbs 16.33 reminds us of this truth. It says that the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Haman can cast all the lots he wants. It is God who rules the universe. But then secondly, Jeremiah, um, in Jeremiah 30, verse 16, God makes this promise to those who would attack his people. God says, those who plunder you will be plundered. And those who, dis- those who make spoil of you, I will despoil. Now what we see in, in God's vindication here is there are three major things that changed for God's people on this day. And I want to point them out briefly. The first thing that changed is that we are told that the fear of the Jews came upon all the people in verse 2. That was not true up until this point in the story. The people were actually planning to kill them. They were not afraid of them. They were going to do what they pleased with the Jewish people. But the fear of the Lord had fallen on them. This is the same thing that God had done to the people of Canaan as the Jews entered the promised land. God put the fear of his people on those who inhabited Canaan. Listen to what Deuteronomy 2 says. This is a promise of God, what he says to the people of Israel. He says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole of heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you, and if you remember the story, as they send spies into Jericho, they meet, the, they meet the harlot Rahab, and they ask Rahab to hide them. And Rahab says, the, the melt of all the people, the, the, the heart of all the people has melted because of you. They are terrified because of what they've heard about what God did to the Egyptians. Only spare my family. And so God had put the fear of his people in all the hearts of Canaan. So that, that's one of the major things that changed. That change. This means there was a change of circumstance for the Jews. They're no longer looked upon as weak and disposable, but the people see them as strong and fearsome. And so the thoughts and actions towards the people has also changed. But I want you to notice something about this. I want you to see this from a different perspective. I want you to notice that when God puts His fear on people, that is God's grace Towards them, you might go. Well, how is that? How, how can that be God's grace to make him, make them fe- to make me afraid of something? How is that God's grace towards me? Well, let me tell you why. It is through this fear that their own lives are preserved, because if they fear the Jews and do not attack them, they will be spared. But if they have no fear and they attack the Jews, they'll be destroyed. This is a healthy, wholesome, godly fear. We teach this to our children. You shouldn't play in the street. You should have a healthy fear of playing in the street. You should have a healthy fear of not playing with fire or fireworks or things that will do you harm. And here, the people of Persia should have a healthy fear of the people of God. And so here's my question. The Bible says in Romans 3.18, and this speaks very clearly of our society. Romans 3.18 says, "...there is no fear of the Lord before their eyes." That those who live out in our culture have no fear of God in their eyes. And my question to you is, do you live in such a way that the people around you actually fear God rightly and want to honor Him? Or does the way you live actually tempt them and lead them towards further blasphemy, further lawlessness, and further judgment before God? So here everything changes for the people for the for the Jews in Persia when the fear of God uh, begun, begins moving through the empire but there's a second thing that happens too it's not just the fear of the Jews it's also the fear of Mordecai look at verses 3 and 4 we find out that everybody now fears Mordecai it's, so with Mordecai replacing Haman as the new prime minister there's an immediate change in power and authority in the Persian empire Now, Mordecai, if you remember, has been through terrible dark days. He's been mistreated and abused by people like Haman who are in political power. But God has been preparing him for just this moment. God had used all of those difficult circumstances for Mordecai, all of those struggles and difficulties, to prepare him for this moment and this influence that he would soon now wield. Now, if you remember... All of the officials were forced to bow down to Haman. And Haman loved it. Haman loved the power that came with that because he was a man who could be corrupted by pride and by power. But now they are bowing, ta- bowing down to Mordecai. But there's a difference between bowing down to those two men. And let me explain it to you. While, Morde- while Haman had only used his position for his own honor and his own selfish ends, He wanted wanted everybody to respect him and bow down to him and do what he said. Mordecai only uses his power for the sake of righteousness. And let me remind you of why this is so important. I want you to think with me for a second. Let's think about character. Let's think about integrity. Let's think about who God has called us to be for just a second. There are those that all of us are tempted towards corruption. That's true, Whether no matter who you are or where you are, we are tempted towards corruption. And the truth is that the corrupt, just like Haman, just like probably many of those governors and those leaders out in the Persian Empire who got to their position through corruption, the corrupt can always be manipulated. They can always be bought. They can always be coerced. They can always be used. But the truth is that that those who fear the Lord and walk uprightly and live righteous lives cannot be. Now, they can always be tempted to and fall, that's true. But if you think about it, what makes Mordecai so, why people fear Mordecai so much is because the corrupt always fear the righteous. Because the righteous cannot be manipulated, bought, coerced or used and so the fear of Mordecai falls on all the officials not because Mordecai will do what is wrong but because Mordecai will only do what is right and so if you are corrupt you best fear the person who is who is in front of you who will only do what is right no matter the cost so many of us I would say would love to have the power and influence of Mordecai but how many of us would be willing to endure what he endured to appreciate it and steward it rightly. I don't know if I'd want to go through everything Mordecai went through. But the point is, there's a change in the fear of the Jews, the fear of Mordecai. But then there's also, lastly, the change in outcome. There's a change in outcome. In verses 5 through 16, we see that there's a complete reversal of fate. Instead of the Jews being destroyed, they are being delivered. Instead of their enemies prevailing, the Jews prevail. Prevail. So this, these verses also demonstrate that the threat to the Jews was real and tangible. 75,000, really, 75,000 people really gathered and really tried to destroy the Jews, but were instead destroyed themselves. They attacked, despite, they attacked, they attacked the Jews even though the Jews had permission to defend themselves. So there were large groups of people, in spite of that edict, who organized themselves with the intent to do harm. And without the Jews' preparedness, without their willingness to organize and defend themselves, it would have been a day of incredible death and destruction for the Jews. Now, I want to do a bit of critical, ethical thinking with you right now, okay? Okay? Some people read that the loss of 75,000 lives was extremely harsh. Well, what are the Jews doing thinking they can just go about the empire killing 75,000 people? I want to to kind of walk through a couple of things of why this is the way it is. Um, When you divide 75,000 by 126 provinces of the Persian Empire, it averages out to at least 600 people from each province who organized themselves to attack the Jews knowing that the Jews had permission to defend themselves. That 75,000 number, though large, is meant to be contrasted with the immeasurable loss that would have happened if Haman's edict stood. So here's the point. There were 10 to 15 million Jews spread, out across, the, spread across the Persian Empire. So for, you to, for someone to try to defend 75,000, you have to say, I'm okay with 10 to 15 million people dying. So you have to choose one way or the other, ethically, which you prefer. That is what I want to drive us to today to think about this. So I want to point out that even though 75,000 were killed, there were at least three ways that the Jews restrained themselves from further bloodshed, even though they had permission from the king to do as they pleased. So, I think the 75,000 number is actually a smaller number than it could have been had the Jews not restrained themselves. So, how did they restrain themselves? Pay attention. Look at your text. First, the Jews were constrained by the Old Testament law. The first thing I want you to know is they were restrained by the Old Testament law. The Jews were constrained by more than the king's edict. They also had the entire Old Testament ethic of God's standards of righteousness and justice already built into their culture. So what that means is is they were already more limited in their response due to their religious convictions. They were not allowed to break God's law while claiming to obey Persian law. So, they were not allowed to hate their enemies or go on a bloodthirsty, murdering rampage through each city and so invite further judgment from God. They had to obey God first before they could obey the edict to defend themselves. In the same way, as Christians, we are constrained by the law of Christ over our government's laws. So, even if our government says something is right or wrong, what matters isn't what they say, what matters is what God's word says. We obey God's word and we are constrained by God's law more than we are constrained by human laws, whether they are right or not. So they were first constrained by that. But secondly, notice that the Jews constrained themselves only to kill the men that attacked them first. Now the king's edict gave them permission to kill the women and the children of those who would attack them. And so the author explicitly says through this text that they only killed the men who organized to harm them first. So the Jews did not attack those that would be innocent in this, the women and the children. We also learn here that Haman's ten sons are killed, which means they also organized themselves and attacked the Jews first, probably to get revenge for their father, And then later, they're hanged on the gallows as a deterrent for those who would still try to carry out the first edict. So the Jews were constrained. They constrained themselves to kill only the men who attacked them first. But there's a third restraint. The Jews were constrained also by proper motives. I want you to look at verses 9, 15, and 16. Look look there. There's the same phrase that appears in verses 9, 15, and 16. It says, But they laid no hand on the plunder." Think about that as far as motive goes. The Jews had every right to kill every man, woman, boy, and girl that would attack them first, and they had the right to take the plunder, and the Jews refused. They would not become rich or greedy or covet other people's gold, and so others could lay lay blame at their feet and say the only reason you killed those 75,000 people was because you wanted their money. No, that's not what happened. This wasn't about money or possessions, it was about self-defense. So in summary, here is the ethical argument for those that might have a problem with the Jews killing 75,000 people. Here's the argument. In summary, the text tells us that every one of those who were killed by the Jews were first, enemies. That's what the text says, they were enemies of the Jews. Secondly, they were enemies who hated them. Third, they were enemies who hated them, who enemies who hated them, who organized themselves to attack them first. But despite that being true, and despite the Jews having the king's permission to do as they pleased, the Jews still did not kill any women or children, and they did not lay hands on the plunder. Now, I just want to say that this is righteous self-defense. Now, this what the Jews did was righteous and justified over against Haman's plan of unrighteous, unconstrained genocide. So for those that might take issue with this ethically, I would ask this question. You have two choices. Number one, you have righteous self-defense that protects the innocent and does not seek to enrich itself. Or you have unconstrained, unmitigated genocide. Let me ask you a second question. Which world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world where you would argue that unrighteous, unfettered genocide is right? Or do you want to live in a world where you say, no, defending yourself is right in a broken world against those who would do you harm? So I'm saying that the book of Esther is making making an argument on ethics here. So that's what you have is God's people are vindicated. All right, so I know I spent a lot of time there, but that's important because we have to maintain a biblical ethic on what it means to ha- what, when something is either righteous or unrighteous, and there's a lot of gray areas in between, but in this instance, we would have to argue that the Jews did what was right, and they were vindicated by God in what they did, and that leads to my second point, which will be much shorter, amen? Amen, that's what I need. We need some short points, so here are the short points. We got four short points. Which leads, after the people are vindicated, it leads to celebration. Look at verses 17 through 19. It says there, um, it says in verse 17, it says, This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So on this day, three times we are told that the Jews had feasting and gladness. God had vindicated and delivered them, and the only thing left to do was to have a giant Persian Empire-wide potluck. Amen. Amen. So this is what they did. They celebrated God's goodness publicly and loudly. Now this is keeping with the Jewish tradition of celebrating God's work in their midst. This celebration was to include all of the Jews scattered throughout the empire, and it was to be a time of joy and gladness for God's providence, protection, and provision. It is right for God's people to celebrate His goodness. Amen? We shouldn't be people of doom and gloom, especially when he turns our doom into deliverance and into gladness and joy. Celebration is a, a celebration is the only order of the day when God's people are rescued and delivered. And so they celebrate. Which leads to the third thing, which leads to commemoration. They celebrate to the point that they want to commemorate this for generation after generation, for family after family, to testify of God's goodness towards His people. Look at verses 20 through 26. It says, "...and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far." Obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as on the days which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as a day um, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow to gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman, and he just retells the story here, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is to cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they, put, they called these days Purim after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them. So, commemoration. This celebration leads to a formal holiday known as Purim, um, which comes from the Babylonian word to cast lots. So, they commemorate God's deliverance with a yearly festival and a holiday. And so, this is just like the Passover and like the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. They celebrate God's goodness towards his people. Now, this demonstrates an incredible reversal. Think about what this day would have been remembered as. Think about what this day would have been remembered as had God not intervened. This will be one of the most tragic days in the history of the nation of Israel. This will be the day, much like this will be the first Holocaust before the second one. But instead, what does God do? He turns this over. And instead of being something that destroys them, he makes it into something that unites them. Instead of something that scatters them further, it sustains them as a people. And so they commemorate and celebrate this day and give food to one another and give generously to the poor so that no one will be left out. And it's a holiday that expresses, God, that expresses gladness and generosity based on God's gift of salvation to them. It is only right when God acts in the lives of people that we celebrate and commemorate and live generously towards others. That's the natural outflow of God's deliverance. It's joy, gladness, and generosity. You have to ask yourself, if that's not more of who you are, you have to, I have to ask yourself, have you met the deliverance that's found in Jesus? Because this is what happens when people meet Jesus. It's a day of joy, gladness, and generosity. It's right for God's people to do this. And this leads, fourthly, to dedication. It leads them to dedicate themselves to making this known, to making God's deliverance known. Look at verses 27 through uh, 32. And it says there, Find my spot. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and, and all who joined them that without fail they should keep these two days according to what was written at the time of the appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, city, and these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. These letters were sent to the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed in their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Notice the language they used throughout this. They firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, generation after generation, without fail, every family, clan, city, across the empire. What this means is, is that Purim became a part of every Jewish family's tradition. In the same way we celebrate Christmas and Easter, Every Jew still to this day, between February the 25th and March the 25th every year, they celebrate Purim of God's deliverance from Haman and his wicked plot. Now, I want to say to us a word about traditions, about the need to be dedicated to traditions, the right traditions. The Jewish festivals and traditions of the Old Testament, all of them influence our experience as Christians, even if you might not know it. What you need to know from a gospel perspective is that every Jewish holiday finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus is the fulfillment of Pentecost and the Day of Atonement. Jesus is the fulfillment of every festival that the Jews have ever, ever had. And so in light of that, we are, it's right for us to learn about them and see how they connect to Jesus they also give us, an, give us insight and wisdom in how to reach our Jewish friends and neighbors with the gospel and to tell them that as you celebrate that, that was meant to point to a greater reality. And that is, yes, God saves His people, but He also came for you Himself in the person of Jesus. Now, Warren Weersby said this concerning Purim and proper traditions. and So I want to read this to you. It's very good. He says, While Purim... And that's the festival that was instituted in Esther. While Purim is not a Christian festival, Christians certainly ought to rejoice with their Jewish friends because every spiritual blessing we have has come through the Jews. The Jews gave the world the knowledge of the true and living God, the Scriptures, and the Savior. The first Christians were Jewish believers, and so were the first missionaries. Jesus was a Jew who died on Passover, a Jewish feast day. And he rose again from the dead on another Jewish holy day, the Feast of Firstfruits. The Holy Spirit came from heaven upon a group of Jewish believers on a Jewish holiday, Pentecost. And as Paul says, salvation is from the Jews. If there had been no Jews, there would be no church. There's nothing wrong with meaningful tradition. The church is always one generation short of extinction. If we don't pass on to our children and grandchildren what God has done for us and for our fathers... The church will die of apathy and ignorance, and then he says, "It's when tradition gradually becomes traditionalism that we get into trouble." Theologian uh, Yaroslav Pelikan said it this way: "Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. One is right, and one is wrong." We want the right kind of tradition, gospel tradition. We want the same kind of faith that Esther and Mordecai had that looks at the face of all this going on and says, we trust Jesus in the midst of it all. We don't need the the dead faith of the living. We need the living faith of the dead that's passed on from generation to generation. So they dedicate themselves, and we end with commendation. Look at how the text ends in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. It says, And King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of his high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. And this is why for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That is a great and noble commendation. But for us as believers, we need to understand that the commendation that we want to receive is the commendation of faith. It is the commendation of faith. Listen to what Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. And what I mean by that is we need the commendation of faith is because Mordecai who received this commendation in Esther that he spoke peace to his people and he sought the welfare of his people which is noble and good and right Mordecai ultimately points us to faith in Christ It is Christ who received the highest commendation ever given to a man where God the Father looks at him and says you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased It is Jesus who ultimately came to bring us peace through the cross He did not come to simply speak peace. Jesus came to die for our sins so that we could have peace with God. And as we wrap up this study of Esther, what we've learned in Esther, and this is the last I'll say, what we've learned in Esther is that God is always at work bringing about His purposes. Though He's seemingly silent, He never slumbers nor sleeps. He delivers His people in the Old Testament from Egypt. He delivers them in kings from the Philistines. He delivers them from Babylon. And in Esther, he delivers them from Haman's wicked plot. But the greatest act of deliverance came when God himself came and sent his own son, Jesus, who saved us from our sin and God's wrath and judgment. And he did this by dying on the cross for our sins, taking the penalty that we all deserved. He took our place on the cross so that anyone who believes in Him, confesses Him as Lord, will be forgiven and receive eternal life in His name. That's the ultimate story of Esther. That's the ultimate story of the Old Testament. And that's the ultimate story of your Bible. That God comes to rescue His people. And we can take heart knowing that that is always true. Now as I close, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus then you need the commendation of faith. You need to place your faith in Jesus, trusting Him to deliver you from your greatest enemy, and that is your sin. There's a day that all of us must stand before God, and His holiness demands that sin be punished. Only in Jesus can, our, can we be forgiven. So come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Give Him your heart. And if you're a believer, then you need to take confidence today, knowing that we need to celebrate God's deliverance, we need to make sure that we commemorate God's deliverance, and we need to make sure we continue to dedicate ourselves to the gospel, which was the means of our deliverance. It is right for us to celebrate God's goodness towards us. Amen? Let's celebrate as God's people that every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ our Lord. And then finally, if you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours where we will make sure that you hear the gospel each week, that Jesus is Lord and that our greatest need is not found out there, but in Him. Would you pray with me and then I'll give you some instructions before we go. Father, we just ask that, Lord, as we close our service, if there's anyone in here who needs Jesus, that, Father, they would come right now at the end of our service and find me or Pastor Henry or Pastor Nick, and we'd be able to share with them how they can be forgiven of their sins and have new life in Christ. And Father, then we can celebrate with them of God's deliverance and commemorate it through their baptism and them, being, uh, them um, uh, placing their faith in Christ. And Father, we just pray that you would bless our church now. Be with, be with us and go with us and help us to live a life of dedication to Jesus, making the gospel known. We pray this in Christ's good name. And all God's people together said, Amen.